I don't know if you've been watching the news this week, especially news in America, and since I grew up there, it is of special interest to me. But this week's news have been especially sad for me, because I watched as one Christian Ohio state congressman, who was a champion for the traditional view of marriage between one man and one woman, was caught in his office sleeping with another man. Another U.S. congressman from my own home state of Texas, who was a champion for traditional Christian values, was found to have sexually explicit pictures of himself to others. Another U.S. senator from Minnesota, who was a strong advocate for respecting women in the workplace, had been accused by several women of sexual misconduct and harassment towards them. And that was just the news this week. While we may find some of these details alluring and worthy of gossip, it breaks my heart because these men can no longer champion the good causes that they have been advocating as everyone would simply laugh at them and call them hypocrites. But this isn't new. It's been going on for decades, even here in the Philippines where what we believe is not consistent with our actions. In the very same way, we as Christians are under the same type of microscope. Because the very moment we profess and identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, we put ourselves on notice that the world will be watching whether what we believe is consistent with how we act. Yes, we are not perfect, and we do mess up because we are sinful people, but just how is it we are to blend our faith with our actions? That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of James, chapter 2, as we take a look at verses 14 to 26. The book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 as we take a look at how faith and works, or actions, I'll interchange the word actions and works, how faith and works interact with each other. As we continue our study in the book of James, in our series entitled, Louder Than Words. As we begin our study, and as you turn in your Bibles to the book of James, I just want to note that this morning's message will be a bit more theological. That means you've got to pay attention. You have to be thinking. You see, these 13 verses we're going to take a look at this morning are often misunderstood and taken out of context to teach something that is simply not taught in the Scriptures. Many have used these verses to teach that salvation is both by faith and works. And this may be the general impression we get from a cursory reading of these verses when we do not consider the context and we do not consider the audience and the reason why these verses are written. That's why it's important when we study the Word of God, the Scriptures, that we take the Bible in its entirety and we interpret it with good theology and proper hermeneutics so that we don't come out with unbiblical interpretations. If you remember, this book is written by James to call the action Christians to demonstrate in their lives evidences of their genuine faith in Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. And in this section, in verses 14 and 26, it is a continuation of what we talked about last week in verse 1 of chapter 2, where James is describing what genuine faith looks like. And in this section, he's going to specifically talk about how actions are to be blended with faith. James in no way contradicts the Apostle Paul nor the Apostle John who both write in their books that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. You see, their emphasis were very different. Paul and John were stressing the basis of salvation while James's emphasis was on the action and the fruits after salvation. James was concerned with what happens after someone accepts Christ as their personal Savior. What are the actions that prove the genuineness of one's faith? 
And therefore, in this section, he will describe four ways in how faith and actions interact. Let's take a look at the first one in verses 14 to 17. I read from James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The question, can faith save him, seems to imply that if one has faith but not with it accompanying works, then that person is not saved eternally. And it seems to contradict what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, and in other places, that salvation is only through faith. But to help us understand verse 14, we need to ask the question, who is James writing to? Who is the audience? It's an important question that will help us in our interpretation. The Bible tells us that James is writing to Christians. Look at verse 14. What does it profit my brethren? The word my brethren is my brothers in Christ. He's speaking to Christians. If someone exhibits faith but without works, can that faith save him? So if it's talking about Christians, does it mean that Christians can lose their salvation if they don't exhibit the fruits of their faith? If their faith don't show forth evidences of works, does it mean they will lose their salvation? The Bible clearly teaches that once saved, always saved, because God makes no mistakes, and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's blood ensures that once saved, always saved. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, then you need to know more theology. Perhaps some may say it's talking about people who claim to be Christians, but they're really not one because they were never saved in the first place. But you know, there's only one type of saving faith. And if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, and if you place your faith in Him, then you are a believer. So what's left is that James was talking to genuine believers who are not evidencing a faith that God desires. So what then is this salvation that James is talking about in verse 14? James was not talking about salvation in terms of eternal life. James was talking about a different aspect of salvation, not one we normally think about. His emphasis is on salvation from God's judgment, God's punishment, God's disappointment with us, and God's wrath when we sin. He is echoing what he wrote in chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, about being doers of the word, not only hearers of it, so that we can save our souls. And that's why context, the entire context, is important. His emphasis was that for a believer... Faith alone is not enough if you want to obey God and have a life that is blessed by Him. That's where we get the word profit. What does it profit, my brethren? How do you live a life that is blessed by God? You see, in this first interaction, number one of you are taking notes, James wants to convey this thought. Faith should naturally lead to works. Faith should naturally lead to actions or to works. And that's the first interaction between faith and actions. And in verses 15 to 16, there's an example of this. Look with me. James writes, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? James gives a very practical example where there is someone who is poor, not in the community, but right in their church. If a brother or sister in Christ, someone who is part of the body, doesn't have adequate clothing or food, and they come to church, and it's a cold day, and as the service ends, perhaps the pastor gives a benediction, and he says, go in peace. May you keep warm as you leave this place, and may your tummies be full. Now go. And that's all you've done, and that's all the pastor has done. It has not helped them fill a real need. James calls this type of faith ridiculous. 
Because it doesn't obey God's word to take care of those in your body, your church assembly, who may have very real needs. You know, if someone comes to you and tells you they need money for this month's rent, or they're cold as the weather turns colder in December, and you tell them, I'll be praying for you. Now, while that prayer is wonderful, that prayer will not fill a man's stomach. It will not keep them warm. You see, perhaps God's answer to that man's prayer is the one praying it. Did you ever think about that? Let me repeat that. Perhaps God's answer to that man's prayer is the one praying it. You see, if our faith doesn't naturally lead to any actions, then the world will laugh. They're going to say, you can't even take care of your own. Why do we want to be a part of your assembly? If you give them words instead of actions when you have the capacity, then what is the point of one's faith? I remember the reading the story of a young boy who was on an errand for his mother. He just bought a dozen eggs from the store. But upon walking out of the store, he tripped and dropped his sack with all of his groceries, and all the eggs broke, and the sidewalk was a mess. The boy tried not to cry, but he couldn't help himself, and he began to wail. A few people gathered to see why this young boy was crying, and they saw what had happened, and they tried to assure him, it's going to be okay, don't cry, little boy, they said. Told him how sorry they were. In the midst of the words of pity, one man approached the boy and handed the boy a quarter. And he turned to the assembly of people who were standing there and said, I care 25 cents worth for this boy. How much do the rest of you care to help him buy eggs? I hope you see my point. James chapter 2 verse 16 points out that words don't mean much if we have the ability to do more. So more than saying you're going to pray for someone, do you actually pray for them? Do you actually try to help them out if you have the capacity? Does your genuine faith in Jesus Christ naturally lead to action? Are you compelled to take action? Are you moved with compassion? If not, you know how the Bible describes your faith? Look at verse 17. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The Bible describes faith without action as being dead. Now, it's not talking about the loss of salvation or that you were never really saved in the first place, but a faith that is dead, in this sense, is a faith that is lifeless. It is worthless it doesn't do any good. It's inactive. It's dormant. And if something is dead, it's useless. That's how seriously the scriptures take faith that doesn't naturally lead to action. It uses the descriptive word death, useless. Now, when we understand this, there are those who may take advantage of this biblical truth. They'll say to you, well, you need to help me because your faith should have works and I have needs. And people can take this biblical principle and they can abuse it. They can take advantage of you. They can try to scam you. And so, of course, we must use wisdom when we act out on our faith. And there are many, especially in our culture, who because we believed a person one too many times, we've been scammed. We've been taken advantage of. And so we become jaded. We become so jaded that instead of taking the offhand chance that someone may actually need help, we would rather try to be right all the time. You'll never get me. I don't believe you. And we become so jaded that we are too jaded from doing good. And that's how many of us are. Because we've heard the stories, we've been warned. But I would rather be scammed or taken advantage of for the offhand chance that I'm actually helping someone than trying to be right all the time. I remember 
about a year and a half ago when we uh, renovated our church lounge. If you've been to the church lounge down below, it looks like a Starbucks. One of the um, amenities or one of the services we wanted to provide was to provide drinks other than the free water, free coffee, and free tea that we provide for you on a weekend or weekly basis. Of course, we brought in an honesty sort of refrigerator where we provided drinks at a cost. They aren't free. Uh, We even put the price there in case uh, you're wondering. In the first few months, uh, we wanted to see if uh, people were actually paying for the drinks. And when I got a report, the first few months, uh, every month, we were about two to 300 pesos short. So that's about 10 drinks a month that someone or a few people are not paying for. And so we had a discussion in our staff meeting, what do we do? Some said, let's take it out. We shouldn't provide this service anymore. There are thieves in our church. Thieves in our church. So cheap, why can't they pay for it? Then there are others who said, well, we actually don't know the situation of perhaps why they didn't pay. Maybe they really needed a Coke. Maybe they really needed a C2 because they were really thirsty or they were diabetic and they needed that sugar rush. I don't know. Maybe they wanted, by all good intention, to pay. They didn't have money that Sunday or Saturday. And they just forgot. So we debated this for a while. And we came to the conclusion, well, you know what? They answer to God. And if they really needed it, and maybe for them it was something they'd crave for, but they can't afford it, and they can't afford a 20 peso Coke, that's fine. They can have it as from the Lord. Our churches joy in giving it to them. Now, that's why we still have the service. And we still, every month, have a deficit of about two to 300 pesos. But we're fine with that. But if we were losing 10,000 pesos per month, that's a whole different story. That service would not be there anymore. I hope you see what I mean. That balance is very difficult to have. Use wisdom. Because there are those, of course, who will use this principle to take advantage of you and scam you. But it's better to err on the side of letting your actions naturally follow your faith. James's point was genuine faith should naturally lead to some action. It's more than simply saying this or that. If the words expressing your faith don't match your action, then that faith is as good as worthless. You can tell people how much you feel sorry for the poor and how compassionate you feel for people who are less fortunate than you. But if you don't do anything, they're just words. Let's take a look at our second principle, verses 18 to 19. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In verse 18, James shows another principle regarding the interplay between faith and actions. This time, he introduces someone who doesn't object to his first assertion that faith without works is useless. In fact, this person who he introduces goes one step further and instead stresses works. This person says, if you can have faith apart from actions, then I will show you my genuine faith by my actions. My works proves my salvation. This is what the man is saying. My works prove my salvation. And this is unbiblical. In fact, this argument is what many Christians use wrongly to try to judge if a person is a believer or not. They use works as a measuring stick, as a tool to see if someone is truly saved. For them, the Christian must evidence visible good works. What they've done is they've taken sanctification and they have placed it as a part of justification. Because if a person doesn't bear fruit or or do good works then they must not be saved. They wrongly believe that actions always evidence the faith, a saving faith. 
And we've all done this. We know about our batchmates and our alumni friends who we remember accepting Christ in Sunday school or in chapel, and we saw that they raised their hand. But when they left the school and they began to work in the quote-unquote real world, they exhibit no Christ-likeness in their actions. And so we'll look at them and we'll say, oh, this person isn't a believer because their actions are not evidenced of their faith. But Jesus taught in John chapter 15 and in other places that there are those who are true Christians who have yet to show visible fruit, who have yet to bear visible fruit. In fact, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about carnal Christians who were true genuine Christians, but boy, some of the things they did, you cannot imagine yourself doing. And yet, Paul calls them Christians. You see, James was giving us our second principle here, and here's number two. Our faith is not proven solely by our actions. Our faith is not proven solely by our actions. And he gives an example of this in verse 19. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. James responds that faith doesn't always result in good works because the demons, they believe in God. They believe in the triune living God, Yahweh. They believe that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind and that if people believe in Jesus Christ, then they will be saved eternally. The demons believe that. But in their actions, they do the most evil of actions and works. And James was using a very extreme example of demons believing in the right thing, but their actions were completely wrong. Because the objector was saying, faith is not enough for salvation. What really counts is works. And he goes too far in the argument. Since James wasn't saying that works are essential to saving faith, he was saying that works are only the evidence of it. And this goes against the Roman Catholic belief that salvation is faith plus works. Because our faith is not proven solely by our actions. Because if that was the case, you know what? The Buddhists who do good works much better than Christians, because, you know, we're honest with ourselves. Compared to other religions, Christians are terrible at good works. That's the truth. Now, if good works were the basis of one's genuine faith, then all the Buddhists would be saved. But just because someone does the right thing in their actions doesn't mean their faith is in the right place. And that's very important to note. When we exhibit good works, when our actions are seen by the world, they should come from the outflowing of our saving faith in Jesus Christ unlike those whose actions are the basis of their salvation. It's not a competition to prove our faith through our works. But going back to number one, our actions naturally come out, uh, out of our genuine faith. That will radically change why we do what we do. One whose actions comes out of an overflow of one's faith in a work that's already done, will do so in selflessness. One whose good works leads to their salvation will naturally do it because of selfishness. That's why in the correct theology, one can only truly serve God with true joy when they are not guilted into it or when they're not having to do it because they want to go to heaven. Let me give you an example. Let's say one day your friend asks you to help you move, to help them move. You don't want to help them move, but they're your friends, and they've helped you in the past, and so you begrudgingly go and help them move. It's a bad day for you. You grumpily go there. You don't want to do it. You have a bad attitude. And your friend recognizes your bad attitude, and they say, boy, you have a terrible attitude. Why are you helping me with moving? What if your reply was, I'm helping you because I need to go to heaven. 
Now think about that. Your friend will say, just go away. No, no, I've got to help you. I don't want to, but I have to help you because I need some good works to get me to go to heaven. Think about how ridiculous that is. Versus a person who knows that their eternal security is indeed secure. And so when they help someone, they're doing it because of Jesus' command. Because they love Jesus. There is a big difference. The practical application of theology is that if you believe in a theology of good works for your salvation, then every one of your good works is selfish. There is a string attached to it. The joy will slowly be sucked out because now you do those things out of a sense of obligation so that you can go to heaven. Versus a Christian who's supposed to have the joy that comes out of serving Jesus by serving their community. And that's why if you have joyful missionaries and you have joyful pastors and you have joyful Christian lay workers who are effective in the gospel ministry because their selfless action is from an outflowing of their genuine faith, not the basis of it. Think about it. Someone once said, Faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can always see their results. It's true. What results are you leaving? There is a benefit to our personal faith when we are moved to action. And that's our third principle found in verses 20 to 23. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. James's assessment of this objector who took the importance of works a bit too far as being essential to one's genuine faith assesses him as a fool. And he returns the argument back to the original premise that faith without works is dead, meaning that faith without works is useless. And he gives the example of Abraham to tell us about a third principle, verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Now, often when you read verse 21, it seems to imply that Abraham was declared righteous. He was saved when he offered his son Isaac, his one and only son Isaac, to the Lord as a sacrifice. But then that would contradict Genesis chapter 15 and Romans chapter 4, which declared that Abraham was declared righteous when he believed God's promise by faith when he left Ur of the Chaldees to go to the promised land. So when was Abraham saved? When he believed by faith? Or when he showed forth through works his desire to obey God and sacrifice Isaac? Well, this can be resolved when we understand that Abraham was declared righteous more than once. He was saved when he, by faith, left his homeland to go to the promised land. But this second declaration of righteousness only affirmed the first one. Because this second time, he showed to the community, he showed to God himself through tangible action of what his genuine faith looked like. When he would be willing to give his only son, Isaac, back to God. Work does not always evidence one's faith, as we've mentioned, but sometimes they do, especially in this case, with Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac when God asked to test him. Abraham is one whose act of obedience to God served as a genuine witness of his great faith to God, not only to God, but also to the community. Let me put it in your modern-day context. Let's say, for example, you are a parent and you only have one child. And you as parents have built a very large business. And it is your hopes and dreams that your one son, your only child, will one day take hold of this business. You are a faithful Christian. You have come to church. You have given the missions. You've given to the work of God. 
You've trained your child to grow up in this church. You've had your child go to all the camps available, from the high school camp to the college camp to the young adults camp. You've encouraged your child to be in Bible studies. You have declared through your action that you love God with all of your life. And it's your dream that one day your son will take over your business so that he can expand this business for the glory of God to even greater heights. And yet one day at one particular young adults retreat, challenged by God's word, convicted by the Holy Spirit, God calls your one and only son to be a missionary. And to be a missionary in Africa. And your son comes back home after that retreat and tells you about God's call in his life. How will you respond? I can guess how most parents will respond. Most of them will say, are you sure? Go back and think about it some more. Africa? Really? You see, when rubber hits the road, it's not very easy. When you come to the realization that if you endorse your child to follow God's leading in their life, they're not going to take over your business. You may have to sell it. You may have to give it to a business partner. You may have to give it to a relative. The work of your hands cannot be passed on to the one you love. And then to the realization that you may only see your only child once a year, not even once a year, maybe once every two years when they come back from furlough or, or their missionary break. And then you realize, wait, I may not be able to see my grandchildren as I want to see them. And as all my friends have their grandchildren around them, especially on the holidays, my son and my grandchildren are in Africa somewhere. I want you to think about that. Will your actions exhibit the faith that you claim to have? It's a lot harder than you think. Or what if you, as an unmarried young man or young woman, if you are to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and he calls you to a life of singleness for the rest of your life so that you can faithfully or more faithfully serve him, is that something that you're willing to take on? Or if he calls yourself to give up living in Forbes Park or wherever you live and then to downsize to a rented one bedroom because he's going to call you and your family to give up your business and to serve him in the ministry. Can you make that decision and make that call? Because those actions and those works truly demonstrate to the world your faith in the Lord. And if you are unwilling, then when you say, I love God with all of my heart and I will do anything for him, then you know what? Those words run empty. hard but that was the call to action you see those actions that evidence our genuine faith is something that is a mighty testimony to an unbelieving world that was the force of emphasis for what Abraham did when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac knowing that he was to be the father of many nations, believing in that promise, and then realizing, but that's my only son, and how God works that out, I don't know, but I will obey him. And because of that, something positive came out. Look at verse 22 to 23. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scriptures was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. The Bible tells us the benefit of evidencing through action one's faith 
is that one's faith will be deepened. Abraham's faith was made stronger. Look at verse 22. It was perfected. Because of his actions and works for the Lord, his faith was made stronger. And if you go back and read his story in the book of Genesis, you'll find that his action allowed him to see God at work, how God, at the nick of time, told him to stop, and then provided a substitute of a sacrificial animal caught in the bushes, which then he sacrificed, that surely must have increased Abraham's faith. In fact, in verse 23, we see that James tells us that Abraham walked so intimately close with God that he was called the friend of God. A friend of God. When your actions naturally leads to a deepening of your faith, that depth of faith will allow you to walk intimately with God so that you will be called His friend. And that is the third principle, the third interplay between faith and works. Number three, our faith is made deeper by our actions. Our faith is made deeper by our actions. That's why generally those who are serving the Lord... Those who are working for the Lord find that their spiritual lives are deep and it's more vibrant. There is a direct correlation. And you will find that those who are stagnant in their faith, it doesn't matter how many years you've been sitting in this church, if you are not serving the Lord in your actions, then you will find that your spiritual growth is stunted if you're not serving the Lord in any capacity. Even in my own capacity as a pastor my faith walk is deepening. Not because I'm a spiritual guru. I'm just like you. I struggle in my prayer life just like you do. I struggle with carving out time to have a quiet time sometimes in the busyness of what I do. But in my capacity as a pastor serving the Lord, I see and have seen firsthand how men and women come to know Christ when their hearts were so hard. A miraculous work of God to transform a person who I thought in my mind would never be transformed or I see through my own eyes how prayers are providentially answered or how God provides church resources just at the right time and at the right amount. And through my own eyes and serving the Lord, this experience builds my faith, deepened my walk, as I am in awe of what God can do and is doing. So if you want to grow your faith, if you want to deepen your faith, serve in the church. Help others. Take the next tangible step in your own spiritual growth. Learn theology. Take one of our step classes. It will deepen your faith guaranteed because that is a biblical principle. Jesus' own words in John 15 verse 14. What does Jesus say? You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. The intimacy of a deep walk with God directly correlates to your actions of obedience in following, in following what God has instructed you and I to do. When you can work out your faith in obedience. Our faith is made deeper by our actions. Our fourth principle found in verses 24 to 26. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In verse 24, when it talks about our faith or our works are justifying us, it is in the context of declaring us righteous to a world that is looking at us. You see, the world can't see into our hearts. It can't peer into the hearts of men and women who have a saving faith. The only way we can testify about our justification, being declared righteous before God, is through our actions. And that's why one of the ordinances of our faith is baptism. Because through baptism, a person identifies themselves with Jesus Christ. They are proclaiming 
through an outward act of obedience in baptism, their inward faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps there were those in James's community of churches he was writing to who were excusing themselves from actions and they said to themselves, you know what? Faith is good enough. We're fine. Even if you call us useless, we're fine. But James was saying, no, it's not fine. He says, the world can't see your saving faith apart from the actions you do. And here we draw out our fourth principle, our fourth interaction between faith and works, number four. Our faith is seen by the world through our actions. Our faith is seen by the world through our actions. To the outsider, faith without works is dead to them. It's useless to them. It doesn't matter how much you say you love Jesus and you sing songs about how you love Jesus and how you want to live for Him. If they don't see anything in your life about how you really love Him, how you place Him as a priority in your schedule, how you live for Him and what you do, you know what they see? They see empty words. That's all they see. They see empty words. And the example James uses to show us this is the person of Rahab. Remember Rahab? Rahab the prostitute. Verse 25. He uses Rahab from the book of Judges. You know, from Abraham, the great man of faith, to Rahab the prostitute. She was a prostitute who lived in Jericho, but somehow she had come to know and fear the one true God. So when Joshua sent, remember the story? He sent two spies to scout out Jericho. What did Rahab do? Rahab hid the two spies from the troops looking for them. And then she asked the spies to remember her and her family when Joshua and his men took over the city. And they said, you need to do something. Tie a scarlet cord from outside your window to identify yourself. And you and your family will be saved. And that's exactly what happened. You see, her faith in God... Her belief in the true God, Yahweh, how was it evidence? Can you, can you imagine a woman with that reputation comes to those two spies and says to them, Trust me, I'm a follower of Yahweh. She could have said those flowery words in the sweetest of tones. And most people would have thought, I don't think I want to trust you. How do I know you're not going to stab me in the back? How do I know that you're not going to sell me out? How do I know that you're not going to turn me over? And through her actions to show forth her genuine faith in believing in the God Yahweh, she hid them, aided the spies of Israel, and in turn, her actions, her works, physically saved, or we can use the word justified her, when the Israelites conquered Jericho and they saved all those who were in the room with the scarlet cord. Rahab's actions served as a testimony about her genuine faith in the one true God. Our faith is seen by the world only through our actions. And and Rahab, if you read the book of Hebrews, is honored as one of the great people of faith. In this closing section in verse 26, James gives this final emphatic point. Faith without actions, or faith without works, is dead, it's useless. It's as useless as a dead body. And there are believers today who are exhibiting faith-like dead bodies because they have taken no actions to reveal themselves as believers in Christ to the world. I came across this little description of a toy dog. It goes something like this. You might have a toy dog. It looks like a dog. It's shaped like a dog. It's even got a label on it saying it's a dog. But it won't bark, play, eat, fetch, lie down, and roll over. This is all evidence that it's not the real thing. It's just a lifeless imitation. Allow me to change it up a little bit. You may be a Christian. You look like a Christian. 
You talk like a Christian. You even go to church to indicate you are a Christian. But you don't act like one when you're at the house or the home or at work or at school. You don't read the Bible regularly. You don't serve in the church. You're not kind to one another. You don't show forth Christ-likeness. This is all evidence that you are just a lifeless shell of a Christian, useless to God and useless in the eyes of the world. Someone after the 9 o'clock service said, Pastor, you use the word useless a lot. I wonder if that's going to offend anyone. I said, that's not my word. James uses the word dead. I'm just trying to be nicer and just saying the word useless. But that's James's point. It's a harsh reality. Faith without works is like someone who is dead. It is a useless Christian. Because words fall on deaf ears when there's no actions that accompany it. And that sort of action isn't only for adults. It can begin with a young person. Young men and women in their generation can be a living witness through their action of their genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I came across this essay written by Crystal Michelle from Bigelow, Arkansas. She was a 10th grader. Makes her about 15, 16 years old. She was an advocate in her school for abstinence. And if you're not sure what abstinence is, that means there's no sex or intimacy before marriage as God has ordained it. And she wrote this essay. I'm not sure what context she wrote it in, but this is her essay telling us how in her public school she lives out abstinence. She writes these words, Hi, my name is Crystal Michelle. I've decided to wait for sex, among other things, a while back. I pledged to God that I would not even kiss until the pastor says, And now you may kiss your bride. Michelle was a beautiful young lady, and there were many who were pursuing her, many young boys who were pressuring her to do things she had committed to God she would not do. And you know how boys are in that age, or in fact at any age, how their words are so flowery to try to get what they want. And this is her reply to the standard answers of what she'd heard from young men who tried to pursue her. If a boy says to her, real men are sexually active, her response is, so is my real dog. If he says, if you love me, you'd let me, her response is, if you loved me, you wouldn't ask. If he says, but I want to, her response is, but I don't. If he says, everybody's doing it, her response, not true, I'm somebody and I'm not doing it. If he asks her, have you ever done it? Her response is always, have you ever made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? If he asks, don't you love me? Her response, yeah, but I love God more. If he says, I won't get you pregnant. Her reply, that's right, because you aren't going to touch me. If he says, if you want... Let me, I'll find someone who will. Her response, it was nice knowing you. My personal favorite. If he says, but you owe me. She says, okay, I'll buy you a keychain. Do the young men and women of our generation respond with such clarity on issues that the Bible says you must live out these principles to show forth your genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Because our generation, young and old, need to be witnesses to a world through our actions. Just imagine a generation of young men and young women who saved their purity until marriage in this culture that does not. It shouts out in a very clear testimony of their genuine faith in Christ, whom they love more. In a culture that ridicules purity, in a culture, especially for the younger generation, that makes fun of you if you hold to convictions that may seem very old-fashioned in this generation, your action 
is a clear testimony of the God you say you love with all of your heart. Likewise, of a generation of adults live forth a life of integrity and a life of sacrifice and selflessness and honesty and then do so with joy in a culture and in a world that finds joy in all the opposite things like unethical means and selfishness and laziness, then it is a clear testimony to the world of one's genuine faith in Jesus Christ, whom they have said they love with all of their hearts. See, our faith should naturally lead to actions. However, our faith is not proven solely by our works, but our faith is made deeper by our works so that our faith can be seen by the world through our actions. As William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, once put it, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step, like the legs of men walking. First faith, and then works. And then faith again, and then works again, until they can scarcely distinguish which is one and which is the other. May our works and actions evidence to the world our genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is a word that speaks a convicting note to my own heart. It's easy to talk the talk. It's hard to live it out. I pray that you would raise a generation of young and old in this church whose works, good works, naturally follow their deep faith in you. That the world will see that this community This body of Christ in Grace Christian Church is a church that doesn't only speak the talk, it actually lives it out. May the men and women who are gathered here every weekend hold to their convictions, live out the truths of the scriptures every day in the home, at work, at school, amongst their friends, And through their actions towards the world, every person here will proclaim boldly the name of Jesus Christ. May our lives not shame your name. In Jesus' name we pray.